This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, It's time once again for Evidence for Faith, the voice of Rashio Christi. This is the show where we explain the benefits of Christianity for personal happiness and human flourishing. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk And Hastings. today's topic... Oh, sorry, Kirk. <laughs> I stepped all over you. Go ahead. I'm here. Go ahead. All right, with Kirk Hastings. Uh, let's see. I've got a quote of the day. This is from C.S. Lewis. We're doing a, a series, in case anybody noticed. We're doing a series of C.S. Lewis quotes. My favorite author. There you go. And this one says, The world does not consist of 100% Christians and 100% non-Christians. There are people, a great many of them, who are slowly ceasing to be Christians, but who still call themselves by that name. Some of them are clergymen. There are other people who are slowly becoming Christians, though they do not yet call themselves so. So, great quote from C.S. Lewis. Hmm. We are going to be talking about the reliability of the Bible. We, j- we jumped into that a little bit last week, and we're going to finish that off. But we only have an hour. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> last time we finished off, we began to look at three facts that show that the Bible is reliable. The first fact, and we had just started with that, the first fact was that we have many ancient copies of the books of the Bible. And the more copies you have, then the more reliably you can tell what the original uh, manuscript said. And this is you know, not just a way of looking at the New Testament. This is known about any ancient document, any uh, document where we don't have the actual original, and that for ancient documents, that's any of them. We don't have the originals of virtually any. In fact, I don't know of any. It'd be interesting, actually, to see if anyone knows of what is the earliest document that we actually have the original of. I guess the only thing we really have is like if uh, somebody a couple of thousand years ago uh, carved something on a stone monument or something, we might have that. Yeah, you're right. If they carved it in stone, then we've got the original. Right. So, and of course, uh, that's not the, so we've got things like the Ebla tablets. Yeah, those go back uh, several thousand years uh, B.C. Those are originals, presumably, and maybe not, maybe they might be uh, stone copies or clay tablet copies, I suppose. Wouldn't it be but at least they have the potential for being the originals, and inscriptions on Egyptian monuments would be originals. But as far as documents that were written on papyrus or vellum, uh, which is animal skins, then, yeah, we just don't have them. Those things uh, just don't last that long. They, they We're lucky if we can get anything to last a thousand years that was made out of uh, papyrus. But uh, the New Testament just abounds in this kind of manuscript evidence, that is, the number of copies. So, for example, the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have 
200 Old Testament manuscripts, actually more than 200, um, more than 220, that date back to as long ago as 200 B.C., um, those are of the Old Testament manuscripts. And then of the New Testament, we have Greek manuscripts, more than 5,600 of them. And oh, those are in museums and libraries worldwide. That's pretty amazing. Actually, when you think about it, you were just talking about how hard it is for these ancient documents to survive for a long period of time. But here, because of the way they were stored, we have some of these manuscripts going back uh, over 2,000 years. Yeah, that's right. Yep. The, uh, for instance, the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's just because they were very carefully uh, preserved and they happened to be in a very dry area that prevented uh, bacteria from growing and, and decomposing. Yeah, sealed in big stone jars, I believe. That's is right. That's right. They and they were them? wrapped in cloth. I believe the cloth might even have been dipped in some kind of a pitch or something. Right. Uh, I believe. So they, there really was an attempt, though, at least to uh, preserve those those documents. Right. And uh, fortunately for us, they did, including an entire complete a copy of the book of Isaiah. And it just showed the incredible accuracy. And what, what, is to, what credit is to be given for this accuracy? How could they possibly have been so accurate in the past? Uh, we, they didn't have printing presses. And, you know, we've all played this game of whisper down the lane where if you, you know, tell somebody a message and they tell somebody and then they tell somebody, it gets all garbled. So we know that it's easy for these kinds of things to gain errors and to become distorted over time. Well, you can really give a lot of credit to the Jewish scribes down through history that maintained the quality of the manuscripts. So that's our second there, there's one way of maintaining the original, and that's through the massive number of copies, because if there is an error that creeps in, it's, the error is not going to be the same as an error in a different part of the world or by a different scribe. So you can tell which is the original by just throwing out uh, the low-numbered errors, and that's, that's how you find what the original is. So the more copies you've got, the better you can determine that. But in lieu of that, the, the other thing that we have is the quality of the manuscripts and how well were those manuscripts copied. So Jewish, uh, the Jewish people had an incredible love and reverence for God's Word, and this made copying God's Word very, very important to them. So the Jewish scribes were able to preserve the text with just an astonishing accuracy. I mean, it's going to be difficult for us to get across just how well these manuscripts were copied over time. They had developed very strict rules, and I'm sure you know, Kurt, many of these rules that they had. It even involved bathing before they would write, for instance, the name of God. So... <laughs> It was a true, real reverence for God's Word. Well, I've got a chapter in my book about this, actually. Oh, great. When, when I was doing some of the research on it, uh, I was blown away by some of the methods that they used to make sure they were making accurate copies. Um, things like uh, after they would write an entire book, they would count the letters forward, they would count the letters backwards, 
and then they would count to the, the very middle letter of the manuscript. And if all those numbers didn't come exactly where they were supposed to be, they'd throw the thing out and start over right. again. Right. I mean, yeah. that's incredible. Yep. Uh, they were One of the rules they had was that not even a single word could be copied by memory. Right. So they looked at the original, and they had to go letter by letter. Yep. Even if it was a small word with, say, three letters in it, yep. they could not go over to their uh, duplicate that they were making and put those three letters down. They had to go letter by letter and go look back, check it, write the letter, look back, check the next letter, and write that. And um, everything, as you say, was then checked and cross-checked. So it's just amazing. Even a single mistake, uh, then the it was recorded. Uh, I mean, uh, destroyed. Now, I, I did read one authority that, that claimed that if there was a very small number of mistakes, like one or two, that there was a procedure that they could go through where it could be verified that there was an error and it could be rewritten. Okay. Um, but, uh, again, the idea is that they were very, very meticulous to make sure that uh, the copies were exactly like the original. Otherwise, they just destroy it. They were almost obsessive. Why well, they were kind of obsessive about it? <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what are so still even though uh, they were so meticulous because again of course it wasn't printing presses so there still were some variations that developed and the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls enabled us to see uh, some of those variations because prior to that the uh, oldest manuscript that we had was dated to 8900 so that means that that's more than a, a thousand years of difference mm -hmm. and really what they found was that the variations were mostly in spelling or even style style of writing mm -hmm. and didn't obscure any of the original meaning so uh, you know th this is one uh, a second way of showing that this the originals were um, well-maintained and the copies are accurate. Right. So, and I don't know if we mentioned that it was about 1947 that they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. So that was really uh, one of the greatest archaeological discoveries of the 20th century. Well, it's really interesting. If I recall correctly, uh, there was a lot of questioning of the accuracy of the Bible uh, around the 1800s and the early 1900s. Yes, and, uh, that's right. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls really turned a lot of that around. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you can imagine that critical scholars, say in the late 1800s, would look at the Old Testament and they'd say, well, look, these, these date to the Middle Ages, you know, AD 900, that's our oldest one. Right. How, how is it even possible that this could be accurate? Yeah. So uh, they made up a bunch of theories about how they were written and uh, the kinds of mistakes and basically didn't really trust them. And so the Dead Sea Scrolls were a tremendous find. One source that I found said that they, uh, when they found the Isaiah scroll, that it was 95% identical to the Isaiah that we have in the Masoretic text of the Old Testament today. And the vast majority of that was just spelling. So right. as an example, they give the example of Isaiah 53. And they picked Isaiah 53, of course, because that is the chapter in Isaiah that prophesies about Jesus the Messiah. Right. So, Isaiah chapter 53 contains 166 words, and it has a difference of 17 letters, okay? So, 
what were the 17 letters? What was different about them? Well, of those 17 differences, 10 of them were spelling differences. Okay? So that's the vast majority right there. Right. Then of the remaining seven, four of those were simple style differences. Right. Okay? So that's, again, that's the majority of what was left there. So that leaves only three letters difference. Well, the only difference is that those three letters spelled the word light, and so the Dead Sea Scrolls has the word light in one of the verses in Isaiah 53, where it's talking about that the Messiah would see uh, the light of life. So, in, in the uh, later documents, it said, would see life, and in the earlier document, it said, would see the light of life. So, that's the only change. And, of course, obviously, that doesn't make any material difference to the scripture that prophesies about uh, Jesus' coming as Messiah. No, it certainly doesn't affect the meaning of, of any of the book at all. Yep. So, a thousand years difference between the Dead Sea Scrolls and what we had in the Middle Ages and produced just very tiny variations, nothing that affected the integrity or meaning of the text at all. So, we, I've got a quote here from Eugene Ulrich. He's a professor of Hebrew scripture. He was the chief editor who worked on the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I even have, let's see, it's on my desk here somewhere because I was just looking at it the other day. Oh, maybe I have put it back in the library. Yep. Well, he produced a book called the Dead Sea Bible. So, if you would like a Old Testament Bible that is only the words that were found on the scrolls in the Dead Sea, you've got it. Now, unfortunately, the, you know, they're, they're missing some things. So, you might look up, oh, I don't know, just as an example, uh, 1 Kings chapter 3, you might go to the, old, uh, to the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible, and it's not there. Um, because the, the first kings that they had scrolls of were, were missing, and those parts are damaged and lost. So, you don't get a complete Bible, but at least if there is something in the Old Testament that was in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's right there for you, and you get to see the difference. And so far, everything that I've looked at, there, there are zero differences. Hmm. So, uh, you know, it's just kind of like reading a different translation uh, of the original Hebrew. It's, you know, essentially identical. And I would so guess anyways, I, oh, I would guess that we don't have any other ancient manuscripts where we have copies of it that are a thousand years apart with that that are that much alike. <laughs> no, no, there's nothing like that. Absolutely. Here's a quote from Eugene Ulrich. He said, The scrolls have shown that our traditional Bible has been amazingly accurately preserved for over two thousand years. That's amazing in itself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then here's a quote. Um, now, this is mentioning about the variations of the New Testament. This is by F.F. F. Bruce. He says the variant readings about which any doubt remains among textual critics of the New Testament affect no material question of historic fact or of Christian faith and practice. That's by F.F. F. Bruce, the famous New Testament scholar. Hmm. So, uh, the third evidence that the Bible is reliable is that the time span between the originals and our earliest copies is unusually short for ancient writings. Now, this pertains mostly to the New Testament, but it's less than 100 years, and this is fantastic for any other ancient texts. So, the Bible's got better manuscript evidence than any other ancient document. 
And I saw a wonderful, somebody did a poster and posted it online that showed a visual representation of the difference between the evidence for the New Testament and the evidence for many other ancient texts such as Livy's History of Rome or Homer's Iliad. And so it showed the center point as being the present time today. And then the size of, it had lines that, that spiral, uh, that uh, uh, came out from that central point. And the length of the line was the time between today, or I'm sorry, the original, the time of the original and the time of the copies, the first copies that we have. And then the size of the ball was the number of copies. So it put those two evidences the distance from the original to the first copy that we actually physically have and the number of copies that we actually physically have. And it puts it into a physical relationship so that you can see it on this poster. And it was just amazing. We've got the dot in the center. And then to the left is this huge ball that represents the New Testament. And it's very close to the dot in the center because it's the, the copies we have are so close to the times of the originals. Mm-hmm. And then on the right-hand side, spy, uh, spoke on different spokes were all the other famous manuscripts from ancient times, like Caesar's Gaelic Wars. And, of course, the lines are very long because th- the copies that we have are very distant, very far away from the originals. And the number of copies that we have are very small. So there's just little small dots, little small balls right. uh, around on the right-hand side of the screen. So, so I hope people were able to follow my little mental picture there of that, what that poster looks like. But let me just give some examples of some of the differences. Caesar's Gallic Wars was written between 100 and 440 BC. Well, we only have 10 copies, early copies, and the earliest one is from around AD 900. Yep. Okay, and there's only 10 of them. So that's about a thousand year difference. Yep. Then uh, Livy's History of Rome, written between 59 BC and AD 17. Well, we only have one partial copy from AD 350, and then the we have 19 other copies that date to around AD 950. So again, we've got one partial that's 400 years later, and 19 full copies that are almost a thousand years later. Mm-hmm. Nothing like what the evidence that we have for the uh, New Testament. Homer's Iliad. Here's a final example. Uh, That was written about 800 B.C. Okay, now this is pretty good. We've got 643 copies, and they date back, the oldest one dates back to around 400 B.C., but still that's 400 years later and only 600 copies. Mm -hmm. Now, how does that compare to the New Testament? New Testament written between A.D. 40 and A.D. 90. We have fragments from the second century, and apparently, according to recent discovery, we have one fragment from the first century, but uh, many fragments from the second century, uh, complete books by circa 200, A.D. 200, and entire copies of the New Testament from around 325. So, all in all, we have 5,600 Greek copies and 19. 15,000 translations into other languages, all early translations. 
So just a real wealth of evidence that shows us that the New Testament has really been reliably transcribed. Amazing. I actually have a simplistic chart in my book also of the uh, of what you're talking about, the comparisons of the different documents. And I wrote my book in uh, 2009, I believe it was. Um, so it may have changed a little since then. But I, I have a chart here that says that if you count all the little um, fragments of pieces of the New Testament that we have, we actually have almost 24,000 pieces mm-hmm. of the New Testament. Yeah, that's and, counting all the different languages. Right. And the earliest surviving copy I have here is about 125 A.D., which is around the same time you you were speaking of. And the accuracy quotient of all of this comes out to 99.5% accuracy. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, And remember, half of the variations are spelling differences. Right. So really, nobody cares about that. I mean, you hear people like Bart Ehrman saying that there are thousands and thousands of variations. Okay, yeah, so what? You know, nobody cares about spelling variations. The rest of the differences, a lot of them are word order differences. Okay, so then, so a couple of words have switched places or in a different order. Uh, you know, instead of the big fat cat, it says the fat big cat. Right. Okay, <laughs> you know doesn't really matter. And I understand uh, that a lot of the spelling differences are minor words like at or of or to or, you know, things like that. Yeah, yeah. A lot of, you know, those kinds of things, if one is missing, uh, you know, that's a difference. But okay, but nobody, you know, we know it's, it's missing. It's obvious that it's missing. But, right. you know, um, another thing is synonyms. Some words, instead of uh, the word that the majority of the texts have, there will be a synonym there. You know, so again, that doesn't change anything. It's still, the meaning is still there. So, um, and anything with a big difference, you know, a major difference, uh, for instance, let's uh, talk about, there's a verse that sometimes critics will say, well, 1 John 5, 7, uh, that is not in early manuscripts. And if you look at it, this is this is a verse that says, uh, talks about the Trinity. You know, it seems to be very uh, clearly talking about the Trinity. Well, there, that verse appears in only four manuscripts. So, of the 5,600, all the rest of them don't have that verse. Mm-hmm. So, we know that verse doesn't belong. Right. I, I, so, it's, it's not like uh, we're confused, you know, oh, you know, should this verse be in there or not? Uh, you know, it seems to talk about the Trinity. Gee, it'd be really nice if it was in the Bible. But, you know, it's only in four manuscripts. I think the oldest one is from something like 1400 A.D. So uh, so we know that this was just added in in the Middle Ages. Yeah, I generally, I have uh, the New American Standard translation of the Bible. And pretty much uh, my understanding is that most of those uh, verses, like you're just describing, they're marked in there, like with a little asterisk. And it says down yeah. the bottom, you know, not in the earliest manuscripts. So they are notated when they have a question about things like that. And I think most of the modern translations do that. If, if there's a variant reading on a particular verse, they'll either alert you to the fact that there is a variant reading for that verse, or they'll actually have the variant reading in the, you know, at the bottom of the page or whatever. Exactly. Yep. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk And Hastings. we're talking about—I'm sorry, Kirk, I stomped <laughs> on you again. 
I am here, Keith. Yes. <laughs> I'm speaking with Kirk Hastings. <laughs> and we're talking about the reliability of the scriptures, the Bible. Oh, Kirk, while I've got you, <laughs> I this Sunday I had Dr. Enwell Hernandez speak to my Sunday school class. And he did a wonderful talk on the archaeological discoveries that show the reliability of scripture. So I've asked him to be a guest on the show. So uh, we'll look forward to having him speak. He, If you remember, he's the guy that was a listener of Evidence for Faith years ago in Puerto Rico, and oh, yeah. he got his doctorate in apologetics and now lives in, in South Jersey. Right. Um, and is uh, teaching on apologetics. So, yeah. so we'll have him to look forward to talking about archaeological evidences. But, I love that kind of stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah, me too. Yeah, it was a real thrill. Well, so these variations then of Scripture, it's less than 1% of them that have any consideration that they might be important, and even those don't have anything that changes any major doctrine of the Church. Now, we talked about Ehrman's uh, Bart Ehrman, his criticism and talking about how we can't really know what was in the originals. Well, he has a list of top 10, quote-unquote, changed verses, okay? Right. Even his top 10 list, none of them have anything of theological consequence. So, there's nothing there that would make any theological difference to any Christian. But think about this. The fact that he can make a list like this proves that we can know what was in the originals. Otherwise, how would he know they'd been changed? Right. He knows which verses have the variant readings on them. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So, uh, it's amazing how a guy like that, you know, he's such a scholar, so well-trained, and to the academics, when he writes to academics, he doesn't dare say that they that he doesn't know what the originals say because they all know we do know what the originals say. Right. But when he writes to the popular street level person, then he tries to convince them that we don't know what the originals say. Then he says that they were changed and just a little bit of critical thinking, just a little careful thought by the reader would you'd be able to figure out how can he possibly know they were changed unless he knows what they originally said. Right. When he talks to the public, he says, oh, the Bible's full of mistakes. Right. <laughs> but That's when he right. talks to biblical scholars, he can't get away with saying that. Exactly. <laughs> That's what well, really there... drives me nuts is, is guys like that. They'll point to these little insignificant changes, you know, that, that are so far and away from the variants that we have in other ancient manuscripts, but then they'll say, oh, see, we can't trust the Bible because of this. Right. But then they'll go to something like the Iliad or whatever, and they'll say, oh, we can trust that. Yeah, sure. And that doesn't have nearly the amount of evidence to support it that the Bible does. Right. Well, we've got more help that we can bring to the argument also, not just those three arguments that we presented so far. Uh, one of the things and you briefly touched on this, is all the translations. So, the remember that the New Testament, even though it was largely written in Greek, it was also very early on translated into different languages. For instance, it was translated into Latin, uh, translated into Coptic, 
Syriac, uh, other different la- uh, languages. So right. that all adds up to um, about 19,000 manuscripts. Right. So if you add that to the 5,600 Greek manuscripts, then you come up with the 25,000 that I mentioned. Exactly. And then we've also got quotations in the writings of the early church fathers. Now, those quotations cover almost the entire New Testament. Yep. So, you know, it's just, there's an amazing amount of evidence that we know what the original said. There's no serious doubt. In in fact, in the New Testament, there are 130,000 words, okay? 130,000 words in the New Testament. Do you know that scholars spend their time, they're only arguing and questioning 400 words? Yeah. So there are 400 words that are in question, and again, none of those affect any doctrinal issue. They're just simply not sure which is the correct word in a certain sentence. Right. So that makes the Bible that you have, today's copy that you have, 99.7% pure. And that little bit of difference, again, uh, does not affect any significant doctrine at all. Gee, that's almost as uh, pure as ivory soap. (laughs) That's (laughs) 99.9% pure. (laughs) There you go. Yes, you can, you can, well, see, the, you use the Bible and it will wash away your sins. There right? you go. It will tell you about the blood of Christ to wash you clean. That was a free like, commercial. I'll have to write exactly. to Ivory Soap and get a uh, residual for that. Yeah, and what is it, Isaiah, I think, where God, God says, Come and reason with me, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Yep, there you go. So you, you can come clean. <laughs> Well, here's another quote by a New Testament scholar, this by D.A. Carson. He says, What is at stake is a purity of text of such a substantial nature that nothing we believe to be doctrinally true and nothing we are commanded to do is in any way jeopardized by the variance. Hmm. So, really, you can, listener, you can trust your Bible. And if you are thinking about becoming a Christian— I challenge you to open up your Bible and start to read. Uh, you can trust what it says. And uh, in the future, when we get on to more issues, we'll look at the archaeological uh, evidence, too. You'll really see how convincing every single little word. I mean, they're amazing. We have archaeological discoveries that relate to just tiny words in the New Testament that we would not have known about except that we dug them up. Oh, that's just so. really interesting. And it's amazing how much we have discovered recently, like within the past few decades, that's really shed a lot of light on the accuracy of the Bible that we didn't have before that. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the Bible has pre- prevailed now more than 2,000 years, if you count the Old Testament, too. I mean, all kinds of dictators and infidels have tried to stop its spread. Uh, you know, it just continues to proliferate. I, I, re- I, I think about Uh, the famous atheist Voltaire, who (laughs) predicted that Christianity would die out. Right. uh, And he said that Christianity would die out within 100 years. Well, about 50 years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society bought his house (laughs) and used his printing press 
to produce Bibles. That's funny. <laughs> what does that teach you? Can you imagine? He must have been turning in his grave at that one. Absolutely. And did they, do you know, did they know that that was his house when they, oh, when they did that? Oh, absolutely. You're kidding me? Yes, oh, they, they did. did it deliberately then. <laughs> sure they did. That's funny. Is that wild? Yeah. Here's a, a quote from 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25. It says, For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which, by the gospel, is preached unto you. Yep. So it is lasting. It is reliable. It's been carefully transmitted down to us. You know, it, in fact, I, I guess people often don't realize just how influential Scripture is. The, a, a report I saw from 2008 by the United Bible Society said that their member organizations have distributed 28 million Bibles, 28 million Bibles just in 2008. Wow. And of portions of the Bible, you know, sometimes they'll do like the Gospel of John or maybe just the New Testament, 300 million portions printed and distributed. And that's just one organization doing that. That doesn't that's count right. the Gideons or any of the other organizations that distribute Bibles. Yeah, I don't know which organizations are associated with them and which ones are not, but yeah, exactly. So that's only part of the, the total story. Unbelievable. And, and those uh, portions, those 300 million portions, they were, they've been translated at one time or another, they've been translated into 2,400 languages. Hmm. That's way more than any other book. Wow. So in fact, if you look at the primary languages of the earth, that is 90% of all of earth's population. Wow. So that's that's an amazing that's an amazing thing. I wonder if there's any other popularly published book that c comes anywhere close to that. Be interesting to find yeah, out. Yeah, you're right. It would be interesting. Like, what's the next most popular book? I wonder right. if we could we could probably Google that. We never hear about what what book is number two. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've got a few minutes left to the show, so we might be able to get into a little bit about the next agenda then to talk about is, okay, we know the Bible's reliable. That is, that we know that the text that we have is what was originally written. It's been reliably transferred down to us, down through the ages. The next question then is, how accurate is the Bible? Is what was written down originally, was that accurate? Right? You mean as far so, as historical dates and places and people and all that kind of stuff? Exactly. As far as any of the things that we can test, right. that we can look at and see. Now, obviously, the general historical context, its I think most people don't have a problem with that. And hopefully now, they don't have a problem with the overall reliability of the Bible, um, you know, that they don't have any kind of serious questions about that. They shouldn't. Right. But... They might have questions about some of the remarkable claims in the Bible, okay, right? I mean, there are right. really strong, remarkable claims. I mean, claims like that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that right. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, right? Right. Uh, miracles, the parting of the Red Sea, uh, different healings and, and people being raised from the dead. The Great so, Flood. So, obviously, there's a lot of remarkable claims. So, what can add to the credibility of that? What can... Is, are, can these claims 
Are they credible? Well, one of the ways that we can test is if we compare the rest of the scripture to uh, historical and archaeological claims. Does it hold up? Right? Obviously, if you had a text, uh, let's say uh, somebody showed you a, a press account, okay, about something that you knew. Maybe it's an accident, a car accident. Let's say it was a car accident that you were in. So you were in the car accident. You know about what happened. And you read the next day, you read the press account of it, and it gets things completely wrong. <laughs> what would you think about some statement? Let's say they had a statement where uh, the driver of the other car uh, claims that uh, he's going to sue you or something or claims that um, he wasn't there. Are, are you going to believe anything that the rest of that story says? Now, that's interesting. The uh, We don't have a regular pastor at the church I go to right now. We're looking for a new one, but we've had a couple of really interesting um, guest speakers at our church, and we had one a couple of weeks ago that gave a great example of what you're talking about. He took an actual news story from a, a few years ago, uh, which you may remember, there was an incident where uh, an airplane, I forget which city it was in, I think it was in the Midwest oh, somewhere. Was this air- the Chicago plane that we did on the show last week? Yeah, uh, it was something like that, yeah. And he he actually read one of the news reports about right. that, and then he read another news report about it <laughs> from another paper, and another one, and another one. This was like the next day, you know, like, like the uh, the Chicago thing. And even the media reports on what happened were all different. Absolutely. They had yep. different details and, you know, like like you were giving in your example. And he was using that to say, you know, this is how people can, a bunch of people can see the same thing, even professional journalists, and come up with a different version of it. <laughs> right, right. Well, we'll uh, get into this next week, but I've got this great quote. This is from Jeffrey Scheller. He says about about this question of the historical reliability. The patriarch narratives fit comfortably in the historical context that modern archaeology has helped to reconstruct. And that context places the patriarchs precisely where they should be, rather than in the hands of a post-exilic writer. So, so he's saying post-exile writer because many of the critics have said that the Bible wasn't written until after the Babylonian exile. Right. And so that's simply not true. Well, you've been listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. Please send your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com and join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah!